Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. The Christian is someone wide awake to life. For the Christian, Christ who is life is alive in them. They've been born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 24, Christ in us, the living Christ indwelling us, the hope of glory. The world is filled with messages that are meaningless and empty, but the Easter message is one that transforms the lives of those who believe it. Welcome to Know the Truth, I'm Wayne Shepherd, and today we'll pause our series that makes good sense as Philip DeCorsa begins a new Easter series titled, Always Abounding. We're learning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why believers can live a life unstoppable because of it. For resources, you'll find them at ktt.org. But right now, Let's join Pastor Philip as he begins a lesson called The Suffering Continues. Let's turn our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. Colossians 1 and verse 24. We're going to look at several texts this evening, but we're going to come towards the end of my message to this passage. Paul writes and he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, And of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I want to speak this evening on the suffering continues. What I want to achieve, my goal in this message is to help you see on the one hand, Christ's suffering is over and finished and done with. But in another sense, his suffering continues through the suffering of the church as it preaches the message of the crucified Savior. So keep your Bible open at Colossians 1, 24, and please give your attention to God's Word. Well, it's Good Friday, and we are focused on the mockery Christ endured, the isolation Christ felt, the beatings Christ took, and the shame Christ faced, and the death Christ died. And as we focus on his sufferings, I would remind you that for his enemies, they were not satisfied with what they got to do to him, the suffering he endured. Their hatred for Jesus Christ was insatiable. For them, the cross was not long enough. For them, the suffering of the cross ended too soon. Because don't forget, Jesus dismissed himself somewhere late on Friday afternoon. In John 19.30, it reminds us that he didn't bow to death. He bowed in death. He sovereignly, according to his own will, in his time, yielded up his spirit to the Father. He chose the moment of his death, right? 
Jesus said back in John 10, 17 to 18, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down. So think about that. For them, the suffering of the cross ended too soon. Jesus' affliction and agony was not long enough. They wanted the cross to continue. They wanted to add to his suffering. So as soon as the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the Father's right hand and wasn't around anymore, who did the world attack? The church. In Jesus' physical absence, they turned their hatred and hostility towards those who represented him, towards those who in their manner of life, in what they said and how they loved, they turned their animosity towards them as they reminded them of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has warned his disciples that that was coming. Back in John 15, 18 to 20, he said, look, they hated me and they're going to hate you. See, if you were of the world, the world wouldn't hate you. But since you're not of the world, the world's going to hate you. Is the servant greater than the master? So as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, and as sure as day follows night, the church will face pressure and persecution for Christ's sake while we are in this world. Since they can't take it out on him, they'll take it out on us because we remind them of him. We preach his gospel. We live according to his law and his love. Isn't it interesting how the early church describes suffering? I'll give you two examples. What about Acts 5, 41, after the apostles were kind of bullied and censored by the religious authorities, it says that they left and they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. They were happy that they got to suffer on the behalf of Christ because they realized that indeed they were his representatives. And indeed, when the world hated them, they were really hating him. Christ in them, the hope of glory. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 29, he says, look, it has been granted unto you not only to believe in him, but to suffer on his behalf. To be on the right side of God has often meant we will be on the wrong side of man. In fact, when John wrote his gospel, where he tells us that the world will hate us because it first hated him, by the time he wrote the gospel of John, round about AD 80, somewhere between 80, maybe as far up as 90, he was the last living apostle. They had all been martyred. They'd all suffered to the point of death. Peter and Andrew and Philip had been crucified. John's brother James had been beheaded. The other James and Thaddeus had both been stoned to death. Nathaniel had been fled alive. Simon the Zealot had been shot through with arrows. Thomas had been disemboweled with spears in India. Matthew had been stabbed to death somewhere in the Caucasus. And now the Emperor Domitian was indeed persecuting the church to such an extent that John himself would end up as a prisoner on the island of Patmos where he would write the book of the revelation of the coming Christ. The world hated Christ. The world will hate Christ in us. Being a Christian makes you weird to the world. Okay? If you're a flat-out Christian, if you're a born-again, you know, on-fire Christian, which is the only type, by the way, the world's going to think you weird. 
And no charm offense on the part of the church will save us from that reality. Jesus was the embodiment of love, yet they hated him because he reminded them of how far short they fell in their love for God and neighbor. So with that background, I'm going to talk about Jesus' suffering. And we're going to talk about his suffering, finished and unfinished, complete and incomplete. We're going to look at three aspects to his suffering. He suffered as a man, he suffered for man, and he suffers from man. The first two are history, the third is ongoing. The first two are finished and complete. The last one is unfinished and incomplete. Let me explain. Keep your Bible open and follow along. Here's the first thought as we think about Christ and his suffering. His suffering as a man is over. And for that, I'm thinking about Hebrews 2, verses 17 to 18. Because there, the suffering of Christ is talked about. The Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus, by means of incarnation, he was made flesh and blood. He was made like unto his brethren. Christ was God, but became a man, added humanity to his deity without confusion or corruption. He was fully God, fully man. And as man, he faced temptation. He faced trials. He faced tears. And the Hebrew writer tells us he endured all of that kind of suffering, all of that kind of hardship, so that he might be qualified to be a merciful and faithful friend to you and to me. Listen to what Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered, being tempted, he is able, capable to aid Sucker, strengthen those who are tempted. What a great truth. In fact, this truth is picked up just a chapter or two later in Hebrews 4. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because you see, he lived as a man. He grew up in a poor neighborhood. He grew up the child of peasant parents. He was a refugee in Egypt for a time. He experienced hardship, betrayal, ongoing hatred. He would ultimately be betrayed by a friend, beaten by the Romans, hung on a tree. I mean, you can think about the gamut of things that Jesus went through as a man. And he did it so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he himself was tempted, yet without sin. Therefore, we can come to him as he sits on the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How beautiful is that? What a friend we have in Jesus, right? All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That's why J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of Liverpool, said, Jesus is the Son of God, mighty to save, but Jesus is the Son of Man, mighty to feel. You know, at times we're tempted to say of God and about God, he doesn't understand. Now, at that point, we've stopped being Christians and we've started being deists. 
that God has removed and unmoved, that God, you know what, kind of created the world like a clockmaker and he, he, he wound it up and he lets it run and he kind of stays at a distance. He doesn't get his hands dirty. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible sent his son and Jesus Christ became like you and me, yet without sin. And he went through all that he went through so that whatever we're going through, he can identify with us. And so although you and I are tempted and at times we, we fall to the temptation, we might say in a moment of anger or discouragement, hit in the dark, God, you don't understand. But he does. More than you understand, he understands. And he stands ready to help you and pour his grace into that open wound, give you an ability to forgive the unforgivable and strengthen you for the fight and give you hope as you travel the road of life. He understands and he undertakes. One writer, Donald McLeod, said this, let us never imagine that God does not understand us. God's son took our nature. He entered our experience. He knows what physical pain is. He knows what emotional and spiritual pain is. He knows what the loss of God is. He stood in the outer darkness in the place where there is no comfort in the place of absolute why, where needing God as no man ever needed God. He cried and God was not there, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't understand that given the oneness of the Trinity. Martin Luther said, oh, the mystery of that. But thank God it's true. Being a burden such as the world has never known and left comfortless. We never go beyond his pain. Our darkness is never more intense than his. Our whys are never more bewildered. Sometimes when we ask why me, part of his answer is me too. Wow. That's the implications of the incarnation and what Jesus suffered. Let me give you, illustrate this and move on. You know what? Imagine a room with two pianos, someone sitting at one piano, there's nobody at the other piano, and the, the musician or the pianist strikes the note, middle C. And the interesting thing is that very same note is registered and responded by the other untouched piano. That's called sympathetic resonance. The Oxford Companion of Music will tell you that phenomena is the sympathetic resonance. Jesus' human instrument is the same as ours. And by virtue of his resurrection, he has taken this same instrument to heaven so that when your instrument strikes a note of weakness, it resonates with him, having been tempted in all points like his way. I'm thankful that that element of Jesus' suffering is over and he is qualified to be your friend and my friend forever. Amen? So his suffering as a man is over and he's now our great high priest, our constant forever friend. Number two, his suffering for man is finished. His suffering for man is finished. You see, you read the Gospels, the tenor, theme, and focus of the biblical writers is that Christ came to surrender his life and to substitute his life for ours in the suffering of the cross. 
If you want a summary statement, maybe you're here and you're a seeker. Maybe you're here and you're exploring Christianity. Maybe you're just here out of a kindness to a friend. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. But I want to tell you that you don't leave with any misunderstanding of Christianity. Christianity is not an ethic. Christianity is not a set of rules. Christianity is a story centered upon a person and what he did for you and for me, chiefly through dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Matthew 20, 28 tells us, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What a beautiful way to live for others. And give his life a ransom for many. That is, give his life on the cross. Surrender his life, substitute his life in your place and in mine. The heart of Christianity is not Jesus' teaching. It's not Jesus' miracles. It's his death and burial and resurrection. Paul tells us that, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. It's a matter of first importance that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And it's a matter of first importance that you and I believe that he was buried and on the third day rose again. Now, let me just get to the heart of what I'm talking about. John 19.30. There's seven words that Jesus states on the cross. And this is the sixth one. It's late in the afternoon. It's just prior to the seventh cry where he gives up his spirit into the hands of the Father. And that sixth cry is one word in the Greek, tetelestai. Three words in the English. It is finished. Just pause. Let's keep it very simple. What do you mean? Now, did you notice he didn't say, I'm finished? They got me. All my hopes and dreams die in this moment. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it's finished. In fact, just some hours later, in anticipation of what he was going to do on the cross, John 17, 4 tells us, he said to the Father, you know what? I'm about to finish the work which you give me to do, and I can't wait to get home where you'll restore my glory. So on the cross, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai. That's a word that means paid in full. This word, tetelestai, was found in documents around Jesus' time, and they were tax receipts, all right? Tax receipts. And this word, tetelestai, was found on them. Paid in full. I've paid my debt to the Romans, or I've paid my debt to the local principality. So Jesus is saying on the cross, I've paid your debt of sin. Wow, how wonderful is that? He paid the debt of our sin in the giving of his life, the just for the unjust. He who knew no sin absorbed the wrath of God concerning our sin and in a wonderful exchange, God put our sin on Christ. And if we'll put our faith in Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. Christ suffered the penalty of God's justice, which sin deserved. And he finished that work. My friend, what Jesus did for you and for me on the cross is enough. You don't need to add baptism to that. You don't need to add keeping the Ten Commandments to that. You don't need to keep the golden rule for God to love you more or you to experience his grace. Jesus said, it's finished. I paid it in full. My friend, if you will put your faith where God put your sin, you can be forgiven of all your sin. Jesus' suffering was enough. The shedding of Jesus' blood propitiated and satisfied a holy God. 
If you'll go to Colossians 2, verse 14, here's what you'll read. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it away, having nailed it to the cross. What an image. Paul has, in fact, that Friday afternoon in mind, that very cross upon which Jesus uttered the sixth word, finished, paid in full. Paul gets the significance of that, and he explains it like this. You know, above the head of a crucified victim was an indictment. Whatever their crime was, whatever debt they must pay to society was written above the cross. Now, Pilate had written above the head of Jesus what? He said he was the king of the Jews. He was messing with the Jews when he did that because they had come earlier in the day and said, you know what, he's offended our laws. He's a blasphemer. He says he's the king of the Jews. We reject him. But above the other two crucified victims that day were indictments, kneeled to the cross. And they were paying their debt to society in their own blood. And Paul is saying, look, I want you to imagine that. And I want you to see above the head of Jesus, kneeled to the top of his cross, the handwriting against you. What does that mean? That is the list of sins you've committed. All the thoughts that have fallen beneath the glory of God the failure to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, the failure to love your neighbor as yourself, covetous thoughts, blasphemous thoughts, not keeping the Sabbath, taking the Lord's name in vain, watching movies where his name is taken in vain. I mean, the list goes on. But the marvel is that list of sins that indict us has been nailed to his cross and he's taken it away. Hey, Philip DeCourcy again. I hope that after hearing today's message, you've come to a place where you're ready to make a personal decision about following Jesus Christ, to accept Him as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you're feeling weary and you're looking for rest and peace, wearied by your sin, burdened by living a life apart from God, exhausted in your search for peace by yourself. But the good news is that peace can be found and rest can be had. And we believe that's found and had in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not peace like the world gives. He also said by way of invitation, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. What wonderful news today. He promises to give rest and peace to those that find him and trust him as the Prince of Peace. If you've got questions about the Christian faith, we would love to answer them. Call us, reach out to us here at Know the Truth. Call us at 888-644-8811 or email us at info at ktt.org. We want you to know whatever your question is, Jesus is the answer. The Bible has the answers, and we're ready to give you an answer for the hope that lies within us. But maybe you're ready to make that commitment. You've already decided that Jesus Christ is the answer, that the Bible has the answers. You're ready to follow him. Well, we would love to give you guidance. We would love to point you to him. We would love to pray with you about that very thing. Would you reach out urgently, immediately to us today at Know the Truth by calling 888-644-8811 or by emailing us at info at We're ready to help. We're ready to talk. 
We're ready to help you. We would love you today to be born again, to begin a new life in Jesus Christ. All right. Thank you, Philip. Again, you can call 888-644-8811 or email info at ktt.org. And if you'd like to help us in the work of sharing the gospel with others, you can give a gift of any amount today. And when you do, you'll receive the book, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin and Three Things He'll Never Do. Beginning with an explanation of the glory of penal substitution, author Sam Storms walks through 12 things God did with our sin, including forgiving it, passing over it, and casting it into the depths of the sea. This book is filled with gospel hope for those who may feel unfit to serve God because of their sins. It's sure to be an encouragement to you or someone you know. Request yours today by calling 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. You can also write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. This is your host, Wayne Shepherd, inviting you back tomorrow for the second part of today's lesson from Philip DeCourcy. Join us Wednesday for Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.